Well, good morning. My name is Paul Brandis, and it is a delight to gather with you in worship this morning. And how great were those kids, right? Can we give them one more round of applause? I know they're not in the room anymore. Uh, if, it is, if it's not obvious, we love kids here at Christ Community, and we love what's happening in our wonderful children's ministry program. That program is led by our children's ministry director, Lo Campbell, uh, with a strong assist from her staff team, Chelsea Keim, uh, and newly added staff member, Amy Hilker. And that staff has been hard at work this fall getting ready to add children's ministry programming at the 1045 a.m. service. Right now, we only really have it at 9 a.m. We have a a child care classroom, uh, one classroom at at 1045, and we're getting ready. We've been preparing all fall. And this morning, I'm thrilled to report that 100% of the regular volunteer slots are filled up for that expansion. I need to ask for another. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. And really, that is a round of applause uh, that we're giving to you all, our incredible congregation that has stepped up and stepped in. Uh, And we know as well, uh, we're well aware too, that uh, this is a big change and it's a lot and that change can be challenging. And so I just want to even briefly offer by way of reminder this morning why we're doing this. Uh, Expanded children's ministry programming opportunities means that more kids and more families have a chance to explore being with us. In other words, this change is about the kids and the families that we don't know yet. We want to create space for them to be here. We, we need it, right? You saw how packed we were down here in front of the stage. And so that's the big why uh, behind this big project that we've undertaken. And if you have questions, if there's anything you're wondering about uh, with that, feel free to reach out to Lo or myself. We'd love to chat with you about how we're thinking about this. Uh, but we're looking forward to launching that on January 8th. Uh, And again, we've got the regular slots filled up, but we always have a need uh, for more volunteer subs to give those regular volunteers a break. And so be encouraged to think about raising your hand uh, to join in what's happening in this awesome program uh, in that way. But for now, if you'd like to join with me in prayer to thank God for how he has provided for these volunteers, how he is providing for our kids' programming, and to ask him to be with us as we study his word this morning, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for being here with us. Uh, Thank you for the joy of those children and the energy that they bring. Um, They are very much, squarely, Lord, we believe deeply, part of the church of today. Uh, They're part of our church and our family in the here and in the now. Um, So thank you for what they get to do in their uh, age-specific programming back in kids' ministry. Thank you for the volunteers that so faithfully give of themselves in that space, those that have uh, raised their hands to do that in a new way uh, for the the new term and the new change that we've added in at 1045, uh, we do have a heart uh, for anyone and everyone, not just kids and families, uh, but any person uh, that might uh, come here to be with us, not because we're so great, but because what we're trying to do here uh, is point to you who is great. Um, And so uh, thank you for the opportunity to do that, and thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, to be here and study in uh, your word this morning. So as we open uh, Psalm chapter 22, uh, speak uh, in and speak through me, God. May I diminish as you increase. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Merry Almost Christmas, everybody, right? We are uh, literally a week away, seven days from right now. We are squarely in the midst of the Christmas season, uh, both in our personal lives and here at church this morning, which that's true, right? We're in the midst of it. And, and then yet you heard the beginning of our scripture reading this moment and uh, this morning, and maybe you forgot uh, that we're in the middle of the Christmas season. Uh, the beginning section of Psalm 22, that's admittedly a little bit of a bummer, right? Like it's not very 
very Christmassy at all, in fact. Maybe you were sitting here thinking, gosh, like who chose the, the Scripture this morning? Was it the Grinch? Like did the Grinch, maybe it was Ebenezer Scrooge. Like who got a hold of this? Who chose this passage, these verses uh, for the Sunday before Christmas? But that's not what happened. I can assure you we had full control over what passage of Scripture we are going to preach this morning. Uh, and what actually is true is that Psalm 22 fits rather perfectly within our teaching series that we've been exploring this Advent season, The Promised King, The Promised King. We spent the last few Sundays in the book of Psalms, particularly exploring passages that powerfully point forward to the coming of the promised king. And, And no spoilers here, right, because we've been doing this over and over again. The promised king, who is it? It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what we have been doing is exploring and mining the depth of the book of Psalms to look forward and anticipate in that section of Scripture Psalms, uh, poems, prayers that point forward to Jesus, the promised King. So yes, I know that Christmas song after Christmas song entreats us toward being merry and bright, and we will get there this morning. But actually first, I want to invite you to journey with me into the darkness a little bit. In fact, this week I was reminded by author Fleming Rutledge of how important it is to not immediately rush toward the light of the Advent season, but rather let the darkness have its moment. That's appropriate and what we should do in Advent. She writes in her book, Advent, the once and future coming of Jesus Christ. Advent is often superficially understood as a time to get ready for Christmas. But in truth, it's the season for contemplating the judgment of God. Advent is the season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light, yes, but the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. If she's right, and I I think she is, then we have to agree, I think, that Psalm 22 is entirely appropriate for this this morning. I mean, just look back at the intense darkness contained within the first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And I cry by night, but I find no rest. Now, these verses may sound familiar to you, and in particular, that first line, those first few words may sound especially familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Church, in a moment of extraordinary significance, when our King Jesus was hanging on the cross, Psalm 22, 1a is what he declared. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, no one knew their Bible better than Jesus. And no one knew the book of Psalms better than Jesus. The Psalms were the songbook of Jesus as he grew up with Mary and Joseph. The the Psalms were his constant, persistent hymnal. And out of all of the Old Testament that he could have drawn from, out of all of the book of Psalms, all 150 of them, King Jesus at that moment goes here to Psalm 22, verse 1. One of the most intense and dark Psalms to ever be written. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Church, the truth is this. King Jesus knows pain. King Jesus knows pain. I'm fascinated by the structure of this psalm, and especially the first part of it, verses 1 through 21a. I find what, how King David, who penned this psalm, I find how he penned it and structured it to be really, really interesting. What we see is that it vacillates back and forth between first-person personal pronouns and second-person personal pronouns with increasing intensity and urgency. I want to show you what I mean. So we'll look again at verses 1 and 2, but I've got highlighted those first-person personal pronouns. Follow along with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But then look at verses 3 through 5, all of the second-person personal pronouns, the you statements. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Do you see? And church, this patterning, this rhythming continues. Verses 6 through 8 are another I slash my section, while verses 9 through 11 are a you section. And then verses 12 through 18 are the longest, the most intense, the most dramatic I, my section before the final you, second person, personal pronoun section in verses 19 through 21a. Maybe as Elaine was reading those verses, you felt that rhythming and that patterning. It's designed to be emotionally jarring, to shoot you back and forth. And I think it meets its goal, doesn't it? In one moment, you're over here, right? And you're anchored deeply in the experience of, of the person that is going through this pain. I'm in so much pain. I'm hurting so badly. I'm terribly wounded. When will you answer my cry? Verses 1 and 2, verses 6 through 8, verses 12 through 18, you're anchored here. But those are not continuous. In between the moments of being anchored here, you're shot to the other side, right? Right? You're there, but then in verses 3 through 5, in verses 9 through 11, in verses 19 through 21, you're over here, but you saved my ancestors, and you've been my God since I was a baby, and I know that you can save me. Back and forth, <laughs> back and forth, this is the rhythming and the patterning of the first part of this psalm. Anchored deeply over here in my pain and my experiences and anchored deeply over here in who I have seen and who I know you to be and know what you can do. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Which to me sounds like what Jesus must have experienced in his humanity, don't you think? I mean, who knew God better over here? Who knew God better than his son Jesus? Who knew better? Who was there at the beginning? Who by him, all creation came into existence? Who knew better what God the Father was possible, what was possible with God the Father than Jesus? And yet, church, who experienced more pain? This psalm, in the totality of it, I think matches the experience of the life of our King Jesus in his humanity. And without minimizing the pain and suffering of any person in this room, you know, hopefully you know, that's the last thing I want to do. 
I do not want to do that. So without minimizing any pain or any suffering that exists in the stories of each and every one of us, I do wonder if we could say this together. King Jesus knows pain, and he knows pain farther. King Jesus knows pain farther. In other words, whatever path of pain we have walked or we are walking in our lives, Jesus walked on his own pathway of pain farther. Which I think, right again, I don't want to minimize your pathway of pain, but I think that point, this point is proved out by Jesus' ultimate experience on the cross. And friends, it is stunning to see how thoroughly this psalm, Psalm 22, points forward to and anticipates that experience of Jesus, his experience on the cross. We've already seen how Jesus quotes from verse 1 while hanging on the cross, but track the rest of these connections and allusions with me. You can study them more in depth this week. In verse 7, uh, the author makes reference, King David makes reference to how those around him, they, they embody a taunting posture towards him. Well, this happens in Mark 15, 29, Matthew 27, 39. In verse 8, there is report of mocking words being directed, knives attacking in. That happens in Matthew 27, 43 to Jesus. Verse 15 is a reference to thirst, right? My, my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. I'm dry like a, like a pot shirt. Jesus himself cries out on the cross, now John 19, 28, saying, I thirst. Verse 16 makes a, a clear reference to the pierced hands and feet. And in John 20, 25, the doubting Thomas disciple, the doubting disciple Thomas, he demands to see the nail marks in Jesus' hands and feet. And then in verse 18, there's dividing garments by gambling. They, they split up my clothing by gambling, which is captured actually in all four gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. Mark 15, 24, Matthew 27, 35, Luke 23, 34, and John 19, 24. There is a clear reason Jesus pulls from this psalm in the midst of his experience of pain on the cross. King Jesus knows pain farther. He knows pain farther. He embodied and lived out and walked every inch of this psalm. And I think the most intense verses within it, that longest section of, of deepest darkness, verses 12 through 18, I think show the pathway of pain that Jesus walks. So I want to enter into those verses as we keep pressing forward. Those verses read, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. They surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Commenting on these verses, and, and in particular on the vicious animal imagery within this section of the psalm, scholar Daniel Estes, he writes this, he says, By combining multiple animal images, the psalmist paints a montage that pictures impressionistically his horrific suffering. As a result, the reader is given the impression of the terror of cosmic anarchy brought to bear on one figure, a vision of what happens when evil breaks through the normal restraints of humanity because the restraining, correcting, salvation, and providence of God are absent. And you hear that quote, 
and I mean, all I can think again, all I can hear again in that quote and in that experience of these verses is Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? King Jesus knows pain farther. And yes, church, I know that this is dark. This is dark. But do you remember that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, while Jesus hung on the cross, literal darkness fell upon and enveloped the entire land? King Jesus knows pain farther. But church, what is also true, that is true, and it is dark, and that is where our psalm starts, and that is the path of pain that Jesus walked. King Jesus knows pain farther, but King Jesus also knows pain finished. King Jesus knows pain finished. I left out one connection. I left out one connection between this psalm and Jesus' experience on the cross. It is, I think, the most powerful one. And I think it shows the truthfulness of this idea that King Jesus knows pain finished. I want to put the comparative verses up on the screen for us. The reference from Psalm 22 is from the final verse, verse 31. And it connects in such a powerful way with John 19.30. Take a look at it with me. Psalm 22:31 says, It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation that He has done it. In John 19:30, When Jesus received the sour wine, He said, He cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. He has done it and it is finished. Amen and amen. King Jesus knows pain Finished. He didn't ever stray from his path of pain toward and through the cross. He kept advancing forward one excruciating step at a time until he reached the end. Until he could say with confidence, I have done it, it is finished. I have done it, it is finished. King Jesus knows pain farther and he knows it to the finish line. But maybe you're still sitting here feeling quite a bit of the darkness with me, right? In fact, maybe you're sitting here with me thinking that this is actually the darkest moment yet. Sure, Jesus cries out, it is finished, but then he gives up his spirit and dies, right? So yes, Jesus' pain is finished, but it actually seems at this moment in John 19.30, it seems as if pain, suffering, and death have won. It seems as though they have had the final word, as if this is the end of the story. And we shouldn't miss. Let's jump back from John 19. Let's jump back into Psalm 22. We can't miss that the same exact tension is contained within the flow of that psalm. We should not miss that there's this massive moment of waiting and anticipation, this deeply emotional and dark and wondering moment. Right, we've talked about how the first part of this psalm, it bounces back and forth with increasing intensity between the experiences of the person in pain and calls upon God to act, to answer, to save and rescue based on his character and how he has acted in the past. Now that back and forth rhythm, it culminates, it, it rises to the top in verses 20 and 21a. Those verses one more time. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life. I don't have another one. My only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the CSB. 
translation. I think it perfectly captures the tension of this moment. Over and over again, we've bounced back and forth between increasingly intense pain and increasingly urgent calls for God to answer. And so at this point, 20 verses in to the darkness and despair, the only thing left, the only question that remains is whether or not God is going to answer the call. Will he show up or will the darkness win? You know, I imagine it like the very end of an intense sporting contest, right? Like the the game is on the line, it's tied up, one team's got the ball, they're advancing down the field, the clock, is, it's under a minute, right? It's, it's, it's clicking down. We're approaching when it's going to hit triple zeros. God, we're going to lose unless you show up in a big way. That's the emotional energy, I think, at this point in the psalm. Rescue me from the life of the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. There's got to be a pause, Right? There has to be a pause. There has to be a pause. This moment of intense anticipation, of waiting with bated breath, but then there it is. You answered me. You answered me. The whole psalm builds. It tunnels down to this point. It pauses. Actually, my CSB Bible puts a space just like how I have it here. It wants you to wait. It wants you to pause. It wants you to sit in the darkness and the anticipation and the wondering. And then there's this explosion of God's rescue, this explosion of God's answer, this explosion of God saving. You answered me, you answered me, you rescued me from the sword, my life from the power of those dogs. You saved me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answered me, you answered me, you answered me. Which friends, we know that's what happened in the life of Jesus, don't we? Let's bring it back there for a moment. Let's step back into the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. The end of Jesus' story is not the cross, it's the empty tomb. Jesus cries out, it is finished, knowing what it is coming. Knowing what's coming next, just a couple of days later. The ultimate answer from God, the Father, raising God, the Son, from the tomb by way of God, the Spirit, Yes, yes, 1,000 times yes, God the Father answered the cry of God the Son for resurrection. That is why King Jesus ultimately knows pain finished. And in a powerfully prophetic way, as King David penned this extraordinary psalm, Psalm 22, he pointed forward to and anticipated all of this. He pointed forward to how Jesus' life would fulfill the first part of this psalm. He pointed forward to how King Jesus would finish pain. And he pointed forward to how God the Father was going to answer God the Son's cry for the need of resurrection from the dead. You know, it's a little bit strange maybe, but the emotional journey, I've tried to sort of bring you into how I studied the psalm and experienced the psalm this week and how I think it matches with the life of Jesus. And it's a little bit strange, but that emotional journey, it actually reminds me a lot of Apollo 13. <laughs> I know, stay with me for a second. <clears throat> in April of 1970, Apollo 13 launched from the Kennedy Space Center with the attention, intention of becoming the third crewed Apollo space program mission to land on the moon. But two days into the journey, an oxygen tank in the service module exploded causing the mission to the moon to be aborted and putting the lives of the three astronauts in incredible peril. And the great drama of this event was captured in the 1995 movie, Apollo 13, directed by Ron Howard and starring Tom Hanks, 
This is like a top 10 movie for me, containing what I think is my favorite movie scene of all time. You see, a rescue plan has been almost literally duct taped together to get these guys back from space. The whole world, millions upon millions upon millions of people are watching, and all that's left to do at this point is wait. Will the rescue plan be successful? Will the prayers of the world be answered? Previously, no returning shuttle had ever taken more than three minutes to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and end the communication blackout. In the short scene that we're about to watch, that countdown, that three-minute countdown, has come and gone. It is the darkest moment. Hope is diminishing. In fact, it's all but gone. Let's watch. Four minutes standing by. Odyssey, uh, Houston, do you read? That's Psalm 22, <laughs> right? That darkness, the, the, the despair setting in, like it's, it's all over. Like game, game over, we lost. <laughs> and then you answered me. You answered me, you answered me, you answered me. King Jesus knows pain finished. On the cross, yes, but even more than the empty tomb. And friends, here's where this story starts to get really incredible. I already think this, this journey that Jesus walks out in Psalm 22 is pretty amazing, but we have to see where this road continues. So King Jesus knows pain farther, finished, but he also knows pain for us. He knows pain for us. We need the reminder that Jesus didn't walk this pathway of pain for no reason. It wasn't random. It wasn't purposeless. It could not be farther from that, in fact. And the psalm, Psalm 22, points forward to this truth in the life of Jesus as well. It beautifully illustrates this point. Take a look at what follows verse 21b. That's what we've just spent all that time looking at. That's God's explosive rescue. That's God's remarkable answer of salvation. Here's what comes next, verses 23 through 26. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. These verses are so tonally and emotionally different than what has come before it, right? In fact, some scholars think, wow, these must have been two different psalms that got put together. But I think they're missing where David takes you to in Psalm 21. Or sorry, Psalm 22, verse 21, where it explodes into praise, then these verses make more sense, don't they? In fact, they're describing what is called a votive feast. You hear the reference in verse, uh, yeah, where is that? Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. This idea of a feast, and in fact, a votive feast. Track with me on this, okay? Follow along. A votive feast is a celebration that is given by someone who had vowed service to God. If their prayer is answered, they were not to keep their jubilation and joy to themselves, but rather were to incorporate others into it, sharing it and giving it away. That sounds to me like what Jesus did. It describes his journey just a little bit, doesn't it? Someone who dedicated their lives in service to God, and if their prayer was answered, they were not supposed to keep their joy to themselves, but throw a big banquet and invite everyone. Friends, we are the afflicted that the psalm references. We are the ones who are crying out to God. We are the brothers and the sisters that Jesus is declaring this great news of salvation to. God has heard and answered our cries by way of King Jesus. King Jesus knows our pain farther, he knows it finished, and he knows it for us. And for all of us too, for any who turn to and worship God, as we are called to do in the final section of Psalm 22, which is verses 27 through 31. These verses, they only extend this votive feast celebration farther, further, to the ends of the earth, to all nations. Let's look at them together and notice with me especially verse 28 as the centerpiece of this section. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And what shall they proclaim? That he has done it. Who has done it? King Jesus has done it. For kingship belongs to the Lord Jesus and he rules over the nations. King Jesus, ruler of the nations and rulers, uh, ruler of the rulers of the nations, he has done it. He has walked the pathway of pain. Farther finished and for us. Farther finished and for us. But again, at this moment, when David penned these words, when he sat wherever he sat, when he experienced the writing and the, the repetition and the singing of this psalm, we shouldn't forget that at this point, at the end of Psalm 22, King Jesus was still but a promise. 
still but a prophecy, still but a shadowy, mysterious future, still yet to be fully revealed in God the Father's plan, which is why we need this one final idea briefly as we closed. King Jesus knows our pain with us. King Jesus knows our pain with us. Isaiah 7.14 powerfully points forward as well to the promise of the son Jesus, who was going to be Jesus, born to a virgin, the one whose name shall be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Christmas, there it is, Christmas, it's the true story of the God of the universe born to die. Born to die, born to walk the pathway of pain that we deserved. Born to walk it farther, born to walk it all the way to the finish line, born to walk it for us, and ultimately born to walk our pathways of pain with us. You know, one of the reasons why we selected Psalm 22 for this series is that we know that for many people, the holiday season can be one of extraordinary pain, of the most difficult suffering. If you've experienced the death of a loved one, or if you're navigating ruptured relationships with friends and family, or if this is just a lonely season for you for whatever reason, whatever pathway of pain you're walking right now in your life, please know that we see you in the midst of it. We love you in the midst of it. And we are here for you in the midst of it. But it's not just us that see you. It's not just us that love you. It's not just us that are here with you in the midst of whatever pathway of pain you're walking. King Jesus is too. He knows your pain with you. I was struck this week back into the psalm one more time. Those verses, 12 through 18, those are the the darkest moment, the most intense, the hardest, where depression is setting in, despair is, is overcoming. But did you notice what bookends? those verses? Did you notice what's in verse 11 and then verse 19? Here they are on the screen together. Be not far from me. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. That's verse 11. And then verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Friends, King Jesus is the answer to this call. He is not far off. He is Emmanuel. God with us. He came near and He remains near by way of His Spirit. So no matter what you are going through, you are not alone because King Jesus knows pain. He knows it farther. He knows it finished. He knows it for us. And He knows your pain with you now. Thank God that He does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know that there are stories of pain scattered throughout this room right now. And it's it's just important to acknowledge that and then to, to sit in it, Lord. And I pray that whatever anyone is going through in this moment, in this room, in this season, they would not be doing it alone. That they would know that we are here, we want to bear the burdens of pain, and that they would know, Lord, that King Jesus knows their pain with them. Thank you for the good news of Psalm 22. 
for the explosion of rescue and answering that comes in that psalm. Thank you, Father, for Jesus who walked the path of the pain of that psalm all the way to the cross, dying the death we deserved. But then you answered him and he rose again to new life and he offers that new life to each of us. He's throwing a votive feast and he's invited all of us. May we all say yes and celebrate with joy that that's available. Thank you again for him. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.